Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California, Counseling and Psychological Services. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, second year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, everyone. Third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Saloni Singh. Hi, Saloni. Hi, everyone. And second year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, y'all. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to talk about something that uh, we as clinicians deal with uh, uh, periodically. It's a very important duty. It's a duty to protect. It's the Tarasoft ruling. Tarasoft ruling that uh, was in California in 1974. And it, came, it comes from a case, a Tarasoft, uh, involving um, a lady that was murdered. And for that reason, and it was, she, uh, the the person that perpetrated the the act was in counseling, was in therapy, and so then from that, they the the family sued, and then this ruling came out. So now that we as clinicians, if we feel that there's a threat, we are in duty bound, we're legally bound, uh, essentially through case law, to warn potential victims and protect them. So it's duty to protect, but. I want, I, I, Alan, I, I know that you've done some research on this. Can you provide some details on why we think this is important? This, this deserves a show, basically. Definitely. I mean, this, this deserves a show. And I want to, that's actually, why does this deserve a show? I want to bring this, I think, first and foremost to a point that Aaron made that was really very, a good point. Um, so I think I, a few of us started the show at least I can speak for myself. I, I, I started the show kind of excited that we were going to have a murder podcast. That would be fun and, and, and juicy. And, you know, there's so many true crime podcasts and, and different things now. It's like, okay, we're going to have a catchy murder podcast. It's going to be good for the listen. It's going to be great. And this is something that's also really in line with what we do because it's it's informs American law very heavily um, and set a precedent for a lot of subsequent laws. However, and, and it turned out this story is a really, really juicy and kind of fascinating story. And, and that was exciting. And then I got this big kind of reality check actually today when I was starting to talk about some of what I'd learned. And um, I think Saloni and I have found some, some similar points. And Aaron pointed out, um, so we're going to refer to the murderer. I think I'm going to refer to him as the murderer. Um, and, and Aaron kind of reminded me that this is the loss of a human life. This isn't just a juicy story. And so I think we're going to try to do this in a way that is reverent of that. And Aaron also had some thoughts on what what it, the risks are if you um, talk about the murderer too extensively or in maybe too glorifying of a way. So why don't you weigh yeah, in? Yeah, yeah, uh, thanks, Al. There's some research that shows that as there's more attention focused on the the murderer, uh, and particularly in the context of mass shootings, because that's what's going on right now. We're having all these mass shootings. It's unbelievably tragic and terrible. And there is some research that indicates that this may, act, this the attention provided to the, these uh, the people that are murdering all these victims in mass shooting can actually increase the number of mass shootings. And so victim advocacy groups are trying to educate media 
to de-emphasize attention to the person that committed the crime and murdered folks, to the victims and honoring their memory and developing empathy for the families and the victims. And that will actually decrease the number of shootings that we have if that's where the emphasis is placed. So we do want to be respectful of that. And yeah, I, I agree with you, Alan, that, it, there, that crime dramas and crime shows are, are super popular. And uh, you know, it's something that provides a lot of interest. And um, you know, I've, I've listened to some of these podcasts too, but we also want to be, we also decided as a group that we, want, we don't want to put too much attention on the person that perpetrated this crime that led to the Tarasov, you know, duty to protect right. Ruland. And, and that's really hard here. And we are going to be putting attention on him because this is about a psychiatric patient who we're psychiatrists and we're talking about, and psychologists, and we're talking about a patient. And this whole law was, a, it's about the patient. In this case, the whole thing is centered around the murderer. So we have decided how we're going to talk about him. We're going to use points that we think are really relevant to the case. We're going to um, talk about him insofar as it forwards things um, and insofar as he was a psychiatric patient. But we're not going to mention his name. And I think we'll start the, the episode by saying, um, you know, our condolences to the continuing family, uh, to the Tarasov family, and and um, rest in peace, uh, Tatiana Tarasov. Um, and so I think we'll start there. Let's let's first of all say that Tatiana Tarasov was an incredibly bright person who was a really tragic loss of life. She was um, even at her young age, without having ever gotten to do college or any of the dreams that she had. She was. Um, highly advanced almost maybe even kind of like a, a prodigy um she was awarded a nationwide award for the teaching of um spanish and uh was just well well beyond her years in many of her academic pursuits um she was you know she had a vibrant social life and had overcome a lot of um challenges her she was uh born to immigrant parents and had lived in Brazil. Um, I believe she was born, I don't want to say, she was She was born in a, in a different country, then moved to Brazil, then moved to the United States. Um, and she started to have an interest in attending Berkeley. She lived, I think, in Alameda. And she started going to Berkeley dances. I think she was Russian. I think that was her um, original nas nationality. So she might have been born in Russia and then lived in Brazil for a while, just for the context. Yeah, I think she was actually born in an Asian country. It may have been China. Um, her parent. I get the sense that her parents moved somewhat. And yeah, they were either Russian or Ukrainian. Um, so she went to a, these dances at the International House um, at Berkeley. And this was the beginning of Berkeley's social... Um, revolution of the 60s, right? This was um, the the time to be at Berkeley. And um, there was a graduate student who turned out to be the murderer who had come from India and had actually been um, a member of the cast that we refer to as untu the untouchable cast in India's, you know, incredibly... Um, I'll say controversial caste system. Um, uh, and he was totally unfamiliar with American dating rituals and um, 
Tatiana was a, you know, teenage girl that was coming about in the world, and she ended up kissing him on New Year's, as people do kiss on New Year's, and, um, I'll let someone else pick popcorn where I left off here. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Alan. I think it is important to mention that the um, murderer was from this caste in India that is called the Dalit, or the um, also known as the untouchable caste, but it's been renamed the Dalit because, of course, untouchable is very offensive as a term. And for some context, India is a highly stratified society of castes. Um, and a caste is essentially... Um, your social class that determines everything about you, who you're able to marry, what kind of job you're able to hold, um, how much money you can make, even where you can live, how you can dress, how you can speak. So this is a very stratified society. And this system still exists in India today, but it was, of course, um, it's being, you know, we're trying to dismantle it in India. We've been trying to dismantle it for decades um, with affirmative action type programs. But in the 60s, this was still very much a thing. And this um, perpetrator came from this underclass in India where he was very much an outcast and uh, frankly did not really find much unity with the other Indian immigrants in America because most other graduate students that are Indian in America came from the other castes. They didn't come from this, this uh, lowest caste. So um, because of that, he was very isolated, even when he lived in America, even from the other Indian immigrants. And they, when I was reading about the case, it seems like he was shut, shutting himself in a lot. And it was because he was at, at Berkeley during the social revolution, like you said, Alan, where nothing really made sense to him. Um, everything was, was uh, very shocking from a cultural point of view. Thank you. Yeah. That, and that, that's such an important context here. Um, this was a person who completely mistook the social cues of our culture and, you know, which which to the point of let's not glorify a murderer, all of this would have been totally relatable and forgiven or forgivable if you hadn't taken a human being's life for misunderstandings, right? And 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 so continuing with the um the way that this happened, um so the murderer basically felt that they were dating and started writing home to his parents um, about Tatiana and um, started, you know, acting as if they were seriously involved. And Tatiana mentioned to him that she's not interested, that she's, you know, talking to actually other guys. Um, and he, at first, I think, didn't really take no for an answer and, and then started to become extremely um focused on this and and distraught about it and he started meeting with her and recording phone conversations i'm sorry recording his in-person in conversations with her and then he would go home and try to analyze what it was it in what she was saying why, how could he make her love her why didn't she love her i'm sorry how why didn't she love him um and he ended up so she, she made it more and more clear that this is not happening and she, she ended the interactions with him. Um, he ended up becoming so desperate. He was stalking her and he also befriended her brother and became her brother's roommate. Um, during 
a little bit later, she she went on vacation back to Brazil. Um, and during that, and I think it may have been an, an extensive vacation, um, he started seeing ther- a therapist. And that's kind of really where this story actually begins. Well, okay. So, yeah, this, this, this sounds like... Um there, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of context and it, this may or may not, this, this says a lot about how, you know, you really need to do your research and your work and make you have a good assessment with clients to kind of appreciate some of this background information to make your determination of, of, you know, what the person might do, because, you know, this is, this is one of the most if not the most challenging ruling that is, is faces clinicians is uh, protecting um, other people because your client is saying something violent or um, uh, thinking about violence or threatening violence. Um, and, you know, not, not all the information is available to you. I actually have some thoughts about the amount of responsibility we give clinicians and whether, you know, some of these expectations that we give clinicians to predict violence accurately are reasonable. That's a good, that's a good thought. And, and I, I, what's interesting about his therapist. So, okay. So, well, at some point, well, I think this is a nice little kind of um, breather in the story where we can talk about this, and it's a good point to talk about it. And actually, so I think his therapist, um, Dr. Moore, um, was exemplary in how he dealt with it. Um, or maybe that's too strong a word for the amount I know about this case. But based on the few articles I read about this, it seems like he really did the right thing here. And... Others in the case did not. There was sort of a cover-up um, of what happened, and we'll we'll get there. But um, it, it's a lot to be trusted with that kind of responsibility to keep all the people that your patients might want to kill safe, particularly, I can say, in my practice. Currently, in the inpatient setting, I have probably about one patient every two weeks who wants to kill someone. Um yeah, and that's that's not fun. Um, but I'm sure it was even less fun for Dr. Lawrence Moore. So so Dr. Moore started hearing, and please anyone jump in if you want to kind of um, jump in on on how you well, want to tell the story. Let me let me jump in first by saying you're listening to KUCR, and this is the show. Let's get psyched, and we're talking about the Tarasoff ruling. How that that's the duty to protect uh, started in California from. Uh, a case in which uh, someone in therapy murdered uh, a student for, at UC Berkeley. And so there were a series of court rulings that eventually ended up in the duty to protect. And we're providing some background information and just how also, you know, how it's going to affect, how it does affect our clinical practice. So Alan, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. What Continue. Well, have any of you guys Terrasoft sure. anyone? Because I actually haven't. I haven't Terrasoft anyone yet. Yeah, I have. So I have. I have as well. So to tear us off someone is in our field is where you, um, you, you take the actions that are mandated by the law that was in honor of Tatiana Tarasov, which means that you um, take actions to warn the victim and protect the, the potential victim of um, the crime. But the actions are through like the authorities through law enforcement. Right. We're not out there. They can be vigilante stuff. (laughs) They can't, they can be. 
because <laughs> you're because it initially this start this began as a duty to warn because the family of uh, Tatiana Tarasov uh, said, well, they we sh- they should he should have told us the clinicians and um, the people treating uh, the perpetrator should have warned us. So it initially started as a duty to warn. And then that was a kind of a mandated thing. But then eventually, it, through a series of rulings, it went to a duty to protect, and it may or may not involve warning the intended victim. That That's my understanding of the And law. it depends on different state wordings. But yeah, that's right. So because well, we're, we're getting into the parts that haven't yet been explained of- <laughs> by the story. So let's let's keep going with the story. And anyone who wants to jump in on telling the story, please. Um, so so. Starts seeing Dr. Moore, the murderer does, and the murderer tells Dr. Moore that, you know, he's, and tells his friends that he's thinking about blowing up this person's house. And um, Dr. Moore made him promise that he would cut off his, his any contact and that he would, um, you know, stop anything having to do with that. And he made that promise. Um, and, you know, th- then Tatiana gets back from vacation and, and sometime around here, um, he is seeing that he's not really able to, um, that, that this threat continues and he ends up writing a letter to the, Dr. Moore ends up writing a letter to the police and he ends up, um, he, he took a, a few different actions, but basically ends up asking the police to detain the murderer on a 72-hour hold um, in order to take him to a psychiatric hospital and kind of figure it out from there, but that he was a danger to himself and a danger to others, which in today's world, at least, would be pretty permissible. Um, The Berkeley campus police at that time detained him, and he was able to convince, the murderer was able to convince them that, you know, I'm in a different state of mind now, it's fine. And the police did not take him to a psychiatric hospital the head of the counseling center um whose name i will say um and that's dr powelson was on vacation at this time and he ended up hearing about this and he demanded that the the police return the letter that was written by dr moore so that he could destroy it he destroyed all records, stated that they would be doing no such detaining of the murderer, um, and basically put this whole thing, um, put the kibosh on the whole operation to try to uh, warn or prevent or any of this. Um, and I wish that I knew why. Uh, I don't know why, and that's something I if anyone does know why from our audience please please write us um and but anyway sorry uh Aaron no no I'm just saying I don't know why either but um it's interesting to note that after this was passed they uh this was passed in 74 right so this really came down in 74 and then um uh in 1984 so 10 years later they they surveyed uh 2785 mental health clinicians and 45% of them said that they felt that they were violating their clinical judgment by enacting Tarasov duty to warn. So um, there's, it's, you're very ethically conflicted when you do this because you're, you know, you're violating confidentiality. It can affect treatment. Um, you, you, you know, we don't, uh, we clinicians are not very good at predicting 
violence. And so, uh, you know, and there was no Tarasov ruling. That's amazing that, I, you know, I didn't know this detail, Alan, about that he sent a letter to the police before there was any kind of Tarasov. Like he, he basically acted before there was any such ruling um, to try to prevent this, this, this murder. Interesting. You know, this is reminding me of the movie Minority Report. I don't know if y'all have ever seen <laughs> yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Arresting someone before they've committed a crime. Yeah, this this commission was very in tune with what might happen, and it did. Right, happen. right. But it's hard. But like, like you said, we we're not really all that good at predicting that. So how you know? And and how many times have you all in therapy heard someone say, "Oh, I could just kill." X, you know, I could just kill my dad. I could just kill my sister. Yeah, and yeah. it's an expression of anger, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're actually trying to kill them. Right. And I've had, um, like, one of the times I had to do it, it was, um, it was, it, it, it was, there was a duty to warn the person that the ruling had not come down yet to protect, but uh, there was a duty to warn. It was a warn and protect, I believe, at that point. It's gone through, through so many iterations, but um, it was someone that had been denied disability. And then, uh, I did not, and I had to, and I did, and it was all, it, it, they uh, thanked me and all this other stuff, but I read, for this show, I read these cases where this is something that happens quite a bit, where they want the, the people to be warned as a, an intimidation factor, because they know the informed consent was like, you know, if, you know, if, you, if I'm a danger to others, if you're a danger to others, I'm going to, I can warn them, protect the, the victims and that thing. And so then they know that. So then they'll say, you know what, I might just go over and shoot it up. And then so they use, they're using this as an intimidation That's factor. That's fascinating. So it's like a way to get your, the people you want to bully to take you seriously that you're Yes, right, 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 right. And, you know, it's, it's illegal to threaten people. So a law enforcement, this has led to, uh, and uh, uh, cr cr criminalizing, you know, these uh, um, people that make these threats. So that they, they now it has doesn't happen a lot. That's my sense of when I read this about this. It doesn't have a lot, but um, police forces will and prosecutors will prosecute this from a statement that was made in therapy. That's oh, really wow. interesting. That's really. I interesting. didn't know that piece. I didn't either. Oh, it's so ethically murky for sure. I think, like you know, I think what you said, forty-five percent. That's really high. Yeah, people that seemed very high to me. Lifted. But I understand it too. I mean, it's you know, at what point do you how, how at what point do you want the patient to be comfortable enough to share these these very challenging thoughts or um, intentions they have that they probably do need to share it with someone you know, and who else are they going to share it with besides their therapist or their doctor? But you want them to share just enough that you're not having to alert the authorities. I mean, it's such a, it's such a difficult, it's such a difficult situation. Yeah. I want to make sure Alan, that you get your time to, 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 to share some of the story because it's unfolding and giving me a lot of details I've never heard of before. So Tatiana gets back from vacation and the murderer basically goes to her house and he asks for her and her mom says she's not home and leave. And her parents were, by the way, they were very protective parents. They had gone through this whole immigrant experience and they were really trying to keep her safe. And um, they had no idea that these, he, while, while he had originally thought that like, oh, her parents must know about me because we're, you know, going to get married and with all his kind of delusional ideas of the relationship, they didn't really know about him until these weird things started happening or maybe not even then he comes back later in the day 
and he says, I need to talk to you. And she says, no. And she says she needs to leave. And he says, no, I need to talk to you. And she starts screaming. He then shoots her in the arm and the head with a pellet gun. And she starts to run away with the neighbors fully viewing everything. And then he stabs her, I think, 13 times. And she dies in one of her neighbor's arms. And he then patiently waits. I think he called 911 or he asked someone to call 911. He patiently waits for the police to arrive. And he says, um, arrest me. I've, ki- I've killed my girlfriend. Um, he then gets tried and, and um, goes to prison for a few years. And after a few years in prison, there's a retrial because apparently the prosecutor coached witnesses. And the new trial gives him 20 years probation and a bargain where if he goes back to India, that's it. He was quoted saying that He has no remorse and that this was a learning experience and that he should just do what he should have done in the first place, which was um, let his parents arrange a marriage for him. That was what he said. He goes back to India. He marries an attorney and has kids. And I didn't want to focus too much on the murderer, but I, I will say I'm curious about where he is. And obviously I have my feelings about the fact that he's a free man while Tatiana is deceased. Um, yeah, this seems like a travesty of justice. Absolutely. Now, what was his diagnosis? I don't know. Oh, yes, I do. He he had a diagnosis that was, a, I think the DSM-2 had just come out around them. That's the second edition of the manual of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatry. And I think his diagnosis was some form of i think it was acute schizophrenic reaction which today would be along the lines of schizophrenia um if i think if we were looking at the case today maybe his diagnosis would have been schizophrenia maybe his diagnosis would have been depression with psychotic features um but we don't diagnose people who aren't our patients due to something called the goldwater rule and so i want to be careful about the fact that we don't have a clue what his symptoms were. Um, no, I was just I, I was wondering if that's part of court records. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Was I was just wondering if that was part of the court and that that may be part of the court records. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, because in that mind, just of thinking of you know how much of a travesty this is, I, I guess that would factor in it. Was he uh, psychotic and um, or because that 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 no remorse and. He thought it was fine. That sounds like he's th- thinking, it, you know, there was no problem there. Until the end, he called her his girlfriend. You know, even when he called, he oh. himself called 911 and said, I've killed my girlfriend. Right. So it, it right. seemed to line up with a delusion of some sort. So so we're running out of time here, unfortunately. So I do want to just finish up by just mentioning that the, the Tarasov family was extremely persistent and resilient and kind of heroic in their pursuit of legal cases to change things and also to i mean fairly you know uh request compensation for the ills that had been done to them 
the counseling center ended up firing Dr. Moore, the therapist who I think had acted so heroically here. Um, and I wonder whether that had to do with Dr. Powelson. I don't know the answer to that. Um, and there ended up being this law that therapists now can violate their confidentiality. Therapists and psychiatrists and mental health providers in general can violate confidentiality and must violate confidentiality when a specific threat is made to a specific individual. Um, and they can alert the police and the individual, or they have to alert enough parties to sort of make sure that things are safe, depending on the wording of the law. And so when we warn someone, we call that to tear us off them. Um, and uh, that's all for me. Yeah, I feel like, um, yeah, it's still a very murky area. They've tried so many times through different rulings and different circuit court uh, uh, judges Different uh, different circuit courts have different interpretations of uh, if who holds the privilege. Did you inform them of this uh, duty to protect or warn and that kind of things? It's also complicated by four states have no duty to protect or warn. Some most states seem uh, like I looked at a, a map of it today. Most states have a kind of a mandatory thing, and and uh, another so sizable significant number of states have a, per, a permissive kind of duty to protect or warn. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult struggle and we might want to do another show on this, Yeah. by the way, to kind and of, I also want to specify, it has to be a serious threat too. Like yes, what Saluni was did. mentioning before, like, oh, I just could kill my father or something might not be a serious threat. But it becomes a difficult thing because with some of our patients, you don't know. And the, the way the law is a lot of times you have to err on that side, on the serious side um, and that includes if if the person that they're threatening is the president or something like that. When I was doing an away rotation, we once had to pursue that. They threatened to kill the president, and we had to pursue alerting someone who alerted someone who pursued the who alerted the Secret Service. And clinicians are protected liability if when they report. So that's also in California at least. So that's a good thing. Okay, so that's our show. On we've been talking about. Uh, the Tarasoff ruling. And thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi, Saloni Singh, and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, suggestions, or questions about the show, you can write to us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com, and you can listen to po- past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <laughs>